We didn't live together until Jim started dying, but that wasn't the plan. It was unseasonably warm for November, the first icy fingers of winter 2004 momentarily unclenched when I took the final turn of my long commute onto the southern Indiana country road. It was dark already, and I'd been focused on taking off my pointy-toed shoes, heating up the pot of chicken vegetable soup, and prioritizing my weekend chores when I saw an unexpected bright white light shining through the pines. I turned into the driveway to discover the glaring halogen spotlights mounted on the front of the pole barn, shining onto Jim's pickup, which was backed up to the pale blue metal building. Every light was on, and intensity spilled into the night through the two open overhead doors. Gawking as I slowly drove by the barn, I pulled into the garage. As I got out, our black mutt dogs, Lila and Diggity, burst in from the night to dance dog hellos and to pull me across the broad black asphalt lot to the pole barn. My tight suit and heels wanted to go the opposite direction, toward dinner and house slippers, but that would have to wait. When I had left in the morning for work, the barn had been empty except for lawn mowers and leftover fencing. My shovels, tiller, and tomato cages were stored out back in the garden shed. The pole barn had always been reserved for Jim. Now hulking equipment, saws, a drill press, and grinders created an industrial walkway that channeled me through darting dogs to the enclosed workshop he had built inside. The thick wooden double doors leading into the workshop were ajar, and Jim was sitting in his green swivel chair, surrounded by a jumble of hammers, screwdrivers, files, and a thicket of cardboard boxes. The blazing lights caught his almost auburn, hopefully combed-over hair. A sheen of exhaustion coated his washed-out face. Why didn't you tell me you were moving in? I asked in amazement. I would have helped you. You could have waited until the weekend. I didn't need help, he said dismissively. He heaved himself up from the chair as I wandered out of the workshop into the depths of the pole barn, taking in the change. Behind the workshop, towering shelves were packed with an assemblage of contraptions, renditions of wall-sized terrariums, and every model of the dog-proof cat feeder Jim had ever built. This is the Invention Museum. Jim propped his long, lean frame against a sturdy end post, a monument to a lifetime wasted on foolishness, he said with a wry smile flitting across his full lips. Bemusement flickered briefly in his tired eyes. I walked over to him and slipped my hand in his, bringing it to my mouth to kiss his scraped knuckles, then running my fingertips over his calluses. I can't believe you did this all today, and all by yourself. I turned and leaned my back against his chest and looked up. He wrapped his long arms around me. What's up there? I asked, pointing to the dozens of boxes in the storage area above the workshop. My books. I drew a sharp breath. These books had lined his study from floor to ceiling in the house he was leaving. Books were the starting points for galloping conversations that had sustained long walks in the woods, cross-country driving, and secluded snowy afternoons over all the years between us. I knew his library as well as my own. In the middle of some developing debate, I could walk to his bookshelf, 
and pull out his copy of Edward O. Wilson's Consilience, The Unity of Knowledge, and turn to any number of points. I had that book on my bookshelf as well, but our collections didn't match book for book. He wasn't just putting his books up there, twelve feet overhead in boxes. He was stowing away half of my reference library, too. You think you know someone. Maybe not everything, but some things. I had been sure Jim would always be surrounded by books. It was an ingrained part of him.